Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the fifth and penultimate episode of Celebration of Cinema, or Celebrate Our Cinemas, the limited edition series of podcasts brought to you by Empire in association with those fine and funky folks at Meerkat Movies from Compare the Market. Apologies for my voice, by the way. I was at a football match over the weekend and I yelled myself hoarse and I haven't quite recovered. So there you go. Anyway, in case you are a newcomer to this series, the goal of the show is simple. Now the cinemas have reopened their doors, we want to celebrate them. Pure and simple. So each week I interview someone from the world of film about the movies and the movie-going experiences that shaped them. What, for example, was the film that lit a fire under their cinematic backsides? What film made them laugh the most, cry the most, or scared the bejesus out of them the most? What's their favourite cinema in the whole wide world? And, of course, perhaps most important of all, what is their movie snack of choice? This week brings an unexpected spark and an unexpected sparks to the show. Russell Mail and Ron Mail are the brothers behind Sparks, the delightfully odd art pop duo who've been making gloriously catchy music for five decades or more. You may have seen them in Edgar Wright's recent documentary about them, The Sparks Brothers. And in that, you may have learned that in addition to their musical careers, they're massive film buffs as well, and have actually been trying to make movies for a while now, getting frustratingly close to the start line with the Tim Burton-directed project a few years back. That didn't happen, obviously, but what did make it in front of the cameras is Leo's Carrick's Annette, a startlingly surreal and brilliant slice of utter madness which stars Adam Driver and Marianne Cotillard as a married couple who have a child. And that's all I'm going to say on that, except to say that it is a rock opera par excellence propelled by a script and songs by Sparks that will live rent-free in your head, in the same way that Jurgen Klopp lives rent-free in Pep Guardiola's head. The movie is out this week, and so naturally I jumped at the chance to talk to Ron and Russell over Zoom from their respective homes in LA. We talked about a great many things, including the struggle to get Annette to the big screen, and of course, their cinematic memories, including one or two big old surprises. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this very, very special celebration of cinema podcast by the the co-writers, the co-creators of Annette, Russell Mail and Ron Mail, better known collectively, of course, as Sparks. How are you both, gents? Doing well, thanks. Yeah. Excellent. How are you doing, Ron? Uh, doing almost as well. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, do, you, do you check in with each other every day? Just to make sure you're both uh, on an on a yeah, even we, keel? We make the phone call. Are you doing well? Yes, I'm doing well. Okay, talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, congratulations on Annette. I, I know that this has been a labor of love for you, that you've been working on it for, for many, many years. Um, in a way, and this is one of the themes, of course, that, that crops up in the documentary the sparks brothers that edgar wright directed uh, earlier on this year there's a there's a great deal there's a theme of perseverance that runs through your career because you've been down the road cinematically speaking with directors in the past most notably tim burton and didn't quite get off the runway uh but you just you keep on going you keep on trying was that something that that kept you that kept you fuel refueled all the way through the, the process with annette yeah well i mean we 
we were really passionate ourselves just to, from the uh, the beginning with this project that we originated called Annette uh, nine years ago, and we thought mm. it was going to be Sparks' next album, and it was something that we could perform live on stage as Sparks doing sort of a more theatrical presentation. So we were passionate about this project, no matter what form it would ultimately take. And then it took a detour when we met Leos Carex, uh, in in Cannes at the Cannes Film Festival eight years ago, he had used one of Spark's songs in his last film, Holy Motors. So we thanked him and met him and wanted to just tell him we were fans of his work as well. And then we had this project ready to go for ourselves. And then we said, we'll just give it, send it to Laos when we got back to L.A. And just out of curiosity to see what he thought about it, because he's a fan of Sparks and wanted to just keep him up to date what we were up to. And then he got back to us after a couple of weeks and said, you know, I'd really like to direct this as my next film. And so it kind of veered off course of being a Sparks album. And then uh, it became a a movie musical with Leos Carax directing and then escalated into Adam Driver taking the lead role in Marion Cotillard. So it kind of um, sort of this little project that we kind of thought was our own then uh, took on happily took on a, a, a different course. And so then it was one of those situations of perseverance, but we had a an ally with Leos Carax that that he single-mindedly worked on this project for all of that time. It wasn't like one of 15 films he had in development, like so many other directors do, like Tim Burton, for instance. Um, you know, he has lots and lots of films in development. So if one mm. doesn't happen for, for various reasons or doesn't isn't like the perfect film at that time, you can kind of jump onto something else. But to Leos's credit, he single-mindedly focused on this film for that long. And so I think that made the situation kind of different than our past experiences that we had had. And he was so passionate about the project as well, just uh, loved it for so many different reasons and uh, was able to, you know, to give it to Adam Driver, who was equally passionate about the project as well. And then it kind of took on its own life from there. In terms of the project itself, I mean, you guys, as we'll get into in a second, you are film buffs, you're film fans, you know your cinematic onions. Did it ever cross your mind about directing this or directing anything uh, over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Not, not really, because uh, we, we had a brief experience directing one of our videos, and it took us three months, and it took, you know, just kind of, moving away from doing any music for that period. So, you know, we, we would prefer, you know, to be involved in, in kind of the, the writing end and, and leave it to people that, you know, that we obviously respect greatly. I mean, it isn't just turning it over to anybody to, to do the directing. I mean, to turn it over to Leo Scarrix, you have a, a certain amount of confidence that it's going <laughs> to, you know, both both turn out into something amazing, but also that being in a similar sensibility to what you might have done you yourself. So you know, it, it there's there's only so much you can kind of do, and we would prefer to to uh, focus our energies on 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 the musical, and, and you know, there, there's so much that we can things have opened up for us now in a way that. Even in the past, they haven't. Where 
where we can both be working on sparks albums and film musicals. So that that kind of uh, takes up uh, most of our the hours of our days. It feels like such a great marriage, though. It feels like it feels like sparks directed the film. It kind of feels we we felt that was the one thing when we met Leos at at Cannes. It wasn't to to kind of pitch him on Annette, but we you know you you either feel a kinship with somebody you don't, and we really felt both on a personal level and just creatively that we we felt that we were on the same wavelength uh, in general. So you know it, it it's kind of you to say that, but just you know just. It, it's hard to know other ways that Annette could have been done than the way it, it has been done, but we we can't see any other way that would be ideal other than the way that Leos did it. And there's so many scenes that he he chose to do in a certain way that were so in line with our sensibility, like the scene on the ship uh, in the storm at night, mm. the decision whether to do it as a... Um, more realistic out in the ocean or to do it within a, a film studio that's set up to do uh, scenes with water and, and boats, but within a studio. And he chose the, the, the interior way of doing it in a, in a studio. And so it has this kind of, kind of a more artificial look to that scene, but in a really beautiful way, really stylized that wouldn't have happened had it been done for in a, outdoor uh, exterior setting on the ocean. So the, this, the decisions that he made are so aligned with what we would have liked any, what we did like. It, it, and so there was the, you know, it was as though uh, we were, you know, s so in tune with each other's tastes. And, um, and uh, Ron, for example, I noticed that behind you, there is a book on your bookshelf uh, says can confidential. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Now, did, did you put that there just for this, sir? Or <laughs> well, I, well, I I bought that in I bought that in Cannes, and I just I uh, I don't read French very well, but I love the the title, "Sex, Drugs, and Cinema." It just uh, and dealing with Cannes. So I don't know anything to do with with Cannes now. I, I you know we've always we've always been huge. You know, you mentioned earlier just huge film fans, and so. When you finally get a chance, not only to go to Cannes, but to have the opening night film playing there that you, you know, you had a large part in writing it, you know, it's, it's kind of a dreamlike experience. So anyway, the, this book kind of uh, seemed like it encapsulated a lot of, uh, even though we didn't get too much involved in uh, the issues that are dealt with in the, in, in this book, I, I had to buy it anyway. <laughs> Well, I, I did want to ask about that that experience in Cannes earlier on this year, um, because I, I've asked a number of people on this this limited edition series what it's like watching their own movies with an audience, and I asked Olga Kurylenko uh, what it was like being in Cannes and being at uh, at a film festival and being part of one of those epic standing ovations, those five, ten, fifteen minute standing ovations you hear about at film festivals. And uh, I'd love to ask you guys as well about your experience because how long was the standing ovation for Annette at Cannes? Oh, it, it seemed like an eternity. We were, you know, it was uh, it was so long the the ovation after the film that um, Leos Carax decided to light up a cigarette 
during the thing and you're obviously there's no smoking allowed but he's a french director so i think they cut him some slack but then not only did he do that but then the the applause continued so then adam driver lit up a cigarette as well and it just seemed like it was this this whole uh you know little vignette was going on for forever and meanwhile each time you know when as soon as the camera turned to adam and him lighting up then the whole audience kind of did another round of uh you know the applause <laughs> continued even louder so it was a it was a pretty uh crazy moment and the yeah it was it was really special for us to be part of it and you know we're standing on the red carpet uh you know overlooking the hundreds of uh the paparazzi photographers there and you know you're shoulder to shoulder with adam driver and marianne cotillard and it's like just like what are we doing here uh but in a great in a positive way <laughs> that was the first time that we'd ever seen annette with uh, a live audience and so it was you know just you know just surreal because they have horror stories as well of really famous films from the past being kind of booed uh after the screenings and you know films that you know you know hitchcock films and stuff and fellini films that that have been booed and you kind of go oh my god i hope this isn't going to be one of those and then later obviously in retrospect the films are you know reassessed for their for what they are in a in a in a more positive way but we're hoping oh god no please don't do one of those but fortunately we uh, the reception was amazing Absolutely, and of course, you've been you've been on the trail with uh, with Edgar uh, as well. Uh, you know, managed to get over here to London a, a couple of months ago now to uh, to watch the Sparks Brothers and to debut it at Sundance London. And what's that experience like? What's it like watching that movie with an audience? Well, it, it's 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 kind of funny because there's there's so I mean it's it's really touching because there's so many um, scenes that that strike an audience, a Sparks audience, and, and even people that weren't a Sparks audience before going in to see the documentary on Sparks, um, that come away with a really, um, you know, there's a really strong kind of emotional attachment to to that film, to, to the saga kind of of the band, that when we, you know, we're so close to it. And when, when, uh, Edgar had done the film. We were always kind of joking about: Is there is there a story? Is are we interesting enough to have a a movie made about us? And he said, "Don't worry, you're interesting enough." And so, seeing it with an audience and seeing what they react to and the things that strike people, kind of in not only in some of the more um, lighter moments of the film, when when you know it gets a really uh, good reaction in in those moments but a lot of the the things that surprised us the most were kind of the more emotional moments in the film um through some of the periods where you know things weren't as you know upbeat in the sparks world for certain reasons that they discuss in the documentary but those those things are the takeaways that a lot of people have seen the film really come away with about what we mentioned earlier about perseverance and all of that, that those kind of uh, themes that Edgar was so, so well, at, did so well at kind of portraying in the film. It was, those kind of things are really amazing to see with an audience. Uh, Ron, what's it like for you watching, watching your, your life story unfold on screen with an audience? Well, you know, it's odd. I mean, we've, we've, uh, you know, we've mentioned this before, but we've always resisted having a, documentary made about us just because it seemed like there was some kind of 
finality to it that <laughs> that we're looking back now and and kind of that isn't our way of seeing things in order to be doing projects like a net or or like a new sparks album that we always kind of uh you know even if it's self-delusional we kind of are assuming that that uh our best days are even ahead of us and so so the just the concept of a documentary about us seemed to be something that would be stifling but but edgar was the one that really convinced us that 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 wouldn't be the case both both just because he's an incredible filmmaker but also just that he he also saw sparks as being that all the periods were kind of equal and that and that it wasn't just focusing on some mythical golden age and you know decades ago so mm. so you know we were you know we were really incredibly pleased with it you know you you feel a bit naked when you see <laughs> a documentary about yourself in that way but we we couldn't have been you know happier and you know just the it we we were just so we're just so fortunate because edgar was the perfect person to direct that documentary in the same way that leos was the perfect person to, to direct the net so we you know we just got lucky <laughs> So let's get into the weeds now. Let's let's get into your cinematic lives. What was the cinema that first inspired that love of movies? What was the cinema you, you remember going to as as boys? Well, we would our our parents would uh, would take us to 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 movie theaters. Obviously, there were no multiplexes at that time, so so they were really a lot of them were real movie palaces and and. Uh, our father would take us usually on Saturday matinees. There would be theaters in. We were we grew up in Venice, California, and so that's close to where Santa Monica was. And there were a lot of movie theaters in Santa Monica, and you know we would we would just uh, there were it 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 wasn't that we were seeing art films or anything because there weren't. For Americans at the time, there weren't art films, yeah. except for some elite, you know, university professors. So, so we were seeing war movies and and cowboy movies, things that were really violent and and uh, and and the other thing was that the movie going experience at that time was was such a lengthy kind of full banquet. It was it, there were always two films and there were always cartoons. And then uh, trailers for upcoming films, and then it was before there was any kind of twenty-four hour cable news. So, so they would have newsreels of of the week's events, and so you know, if and you know, I remember also people taking popcorn uh, 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 containers after they'd finished everything, and it, and the during the intermissions, people were throwing them like. Like there were frisbees around because it was just, it was just like a, the whole thing was just a full kind of experience, and uh, so it it was, it, you know, it was it was pretty, it was pretty amazing, and uh, we we spent a lot of time at, uh, going, you know, going to films when we were early. I mean, we didn't, we weren't doing it in any kind of uh, intellectual way. It was it was just a way 
to spend a Saturday afternoon. Then it then it morphed into later later on uh, when we went to university. Then it then it got to be uh, going to see films. That then we uh, it was uh, ooh they're foreign films and uh, it was then the snobism entered into our cinematic <laughs> palette and we'd go see you know just because you were a hip college student you had to go see the latest you know Fellini film or Antonioni or. Mm. or Ingmar Bergman, or, you know, and the, all of the French New Wave, Truffaut, Godard. And so, you know, we kind of grew up on those films too. But at the time, they also didn't seem, you know, they didn't seem um, privileged films or anything. They just seemed like, oh, these were cool films, what what directors were doing, you know, in everywhere else other than America. And so we just thought, oh, these are, these are why are these films cooler to us than the films that were already existing in the, you know, in Hollywood at that time for us. There was a really interesting period kind of like earlier where, uh, you know, we grew up at the time where television was starting to really make a dent into, into people going to theaters. So, so Hollywood was attempting to kind of keep people going to movie theaters and, you know, it's the same kind of almost the same story now with streaming and, and movie theaters. But at the time it was, it was television. And so, so they had to figure out ways to get, you know, what could they do that would be more than just seeing a movie. So, so there, there were things like Cinerama where Mm. there's, there, there's a big theater still in Hollywood now, uh, uh, the Cinerama dome. And they would, they shot these films on with three separate cameras. So the, the screen was, you kind of felt like you were, completely inside the film and the first the first films were that when we when we first went to see them they weren't even they weren't narrative films it was just like roller riding on a roller coaster and everyone screaming in the theater and you know it was it was like almost what you would have seen if you were first seeing films like in 1900 you know like of a train coming at you but (laughs) But this this was like done in another kind of way, and then then there there were all these other kind of gimmick things. There was there was a film that was shown when we were really young called The Scent of Mystery, uh-huh. and every time there would be something special that had an aroma that you saw within the film, you would hear this hissing coming from beneath the the seats, and and this aroma would come up. So like they would show there'd be like a flower stand and so all of a sudden you would smell the flowers or there'd be a, a shoe shine guy and you would smell you know just uh uh polish and all so you know and you know it wasn't it was kind of like tacking on these things and the gimmick thing and uh, that one obviously didn't last <laughs> but you know they were really really trying hard to get people to still go to movie theaters despite television I think that was it was called wasn't it called Smellovision too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The scent, yeah, and the scent of mystery is the probably the first and the last of those. <laughs> Bring it back for a net. That's what I say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know we got a lot of good odors going on in that film. <laughs> and um, what about now? What about uh, obviously you, you you still go see films? Do you have a favorite cinema right now? Not not just in LA, but in the world. Is it one that that springs to mind for you both? This is it's a play. I mean, I I 
hate to bring up a place that isn't kind of there anymore, but mm-hmm. there, on on Fairfax Avenue, Los Angeles, it, it's still called this, but there was the silent movie theater, and and they exclusively showed silent films, and I believe it was the only place that showed exclusively just silent films, and and we would we would go there. Now now it's become kind of a a, a film lovers club, and they show all sorts of films, but. At that time, it was just silent films, and so, so that you know, there was a really special, a special, uh, a really special experience, you know. And mm. just it's it's harder now because the so many of the movie theaters are just closing down because of the pandemic. That it's almost like there's two tiers now. That it's just you know, kind of big, big uh, theaters, and then and then some art theaters that have managed to survive. So, you know, there, there are places in, in Los Angeles, like, like the American Cinematheque with the, the Arrow and the Egyptian that they're really maintaining, uh, you know, what we feel is the, the proper respect for, for true cinematic art. And, and, uh, you know, it, it's amazing that those places can kind of keep going through this, through the, not only the, atmosphere as far as uh in the pandemic but just you know just the cultural atmosphere where where everything is kind of aimed towards uh you know big mm. franchise kind of films and that's that's part of what this series is about it's about celebrating cinemas and the act of cinema going and that wonderful experience that we all share when we're watching a movie with a hundred or two hundred strangers and you still connect. There's, you can feel it in the darkness, uh, whether it's a, a comedy or a horror film or a, or a really, really movie movie. There's something intangible about it. There's something that's hard to put your finger on, but it's such a wonderful experience. And as cinema goers, uh, I'm going to ask specifically now whether there are movies that you can remember that have made you laugh really hard. Is there a, is there a comedy, for example, or a, or a, a comedic experience that, that stands out for you both? This is going to alienate everybody listening to this, but we saw Ishtar when it, <laughs> at a preview before it came, before it came out. Uh-huh. So we didn't know what the vibe was about that we were supposed to really hate this film. Uh-huh. And I, I thought it was like, you know, I don't, laugh at all that many things but i thought it was really really funny and and i've since become a huge elaine may fan yeah but and then it opened and everybody said this is like you know just the the worst film of all time and dustin hoffman you know and warren Beatty have totally ruined their careers now and 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 I, and to this day i will stand up for ishtar as as an incredibly not only a, a funny film but a really great film we we recommended that film when um when edgar wright's the sparks brothers was just uh opening in cinemas theaters here in in america and so there's a a a really great uh movie chain called the alamo draft house Mm. that shows more um you know what in their minds is better films and and you know we tend to agree so in any case they were gonna they were screening um that week, um, the Sparks Brothers documentary, but they wanted to have a uh, a introduction from us and to to actually show another movie too that was something we recommended. So we we uh, 
we recommended Ishtar and we did an introduction to it and they actually did screen it. So I think they, they, th I think the film is being reassessed by, uh, by a large yeah. portion of the people that are aware of the, the film. And it's, it's, it is like, uh, it does have some merit. So we felt vindicated that they, uh, they, they screened the Ishtar and took our recommendation. We did a, we did a little uh, introduction, a little filmed introduction to the film to the before the movie went uh, started. So. Damn straight, Ishtar forever. Um, but um, <laughs> do you are your tastes always aligned, Russell? Does does Ron sometimes like something that like the you, where you're going? I I cannot believe that you like that film, Ron. And then I'm not suggesting that you come to blows or fisticuffs in any way, shape, or form. But are there arguments or the fallings out about about cinematic taste? No, I mean, I think, I think sometimes it's just, you know, one or the other of us will, um, discover some new film or film or an old film that, that, that the other one hadn't seen or hadn't been aware of. And then, so in that way, I think it's, it's, it's good having, uh, Ron around as a, uh, a source of cool movies so that the ones that have slipped under the radar for me, I get to, find out about Ron's he, Ron has a obsession with a lot of Japanese cinema. So, mm -hmm. so there's films that, that I wasn't necessarily aware of that, you know, he, uh, he tells me about. So, Interesting. Um, yeah. Also, yeah. Uh, Kurosami films. I really love yeah. all this, uh, his, his films, but, but if you want to know about Korean drama, uh, go to, go to Russell. He's the, yeah. Yeah, during the pandemic, since it was uh, bleak everywhere, um, started taking the deep dive into Korean, uh, you know, TV dramas that are like, uh, you know, 16 or 20 part stories that are each, you know, sometimes they're all the length of a, a normal movie. So you're really investing heavy if you decide to to watch even one of them. It, it's like weeks and weeks of, uh, you know, having to take the deep dive, but they've got their own thing going. So as a, it, it's a, it's a real specific kind of thing. Um, and, uh, the, I, I really like them a lot. Yeah. That's amazing. So Ron for Japanese cinema, Russell for Korean drama, <laughs> sorted. Uh, uh, just a couple more specifics now about some cinematic experiences you may have had. Horror films. Are you guys into horror films? Do you remember, is there a horror film that, that particularly unsettled or scared you? One theater that, near where we were living in Venice showed the, uh, the blob. It, so that, that was one of the first, uh, kind of horror, uh, movies. I remember when we were really young and that was, mm. that was scary. And it, you know, that oozes under doors and it, uh, attacks you that way. So you kept kind of thinking when you were really young too, that it was, it was frightening and that, that the ooze, the dangerous ooze was going to come through the doors of the movie theater while you were watching it. So that was scary. Then I remember watching uh, the birds. It's not really, I don't know if that, that's not really horror. It's that sort counts. of boring on it. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. Uh, I'll take and it. And seeing that in, in a, a theater in Pacific Palisades, where we also grew up later on, uh, a little bit later on, and someone had actually let out a pigeon in the movie theater uh, during during the birds by Alfred Hitchcock. And uh, that was, that was frightening too. I was even a little bit older and I was still scared. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, thank God you weren't watching snakes on a plane. Uh, that would have been, yeah, I know, I know. that would have been terrible. Have you seen the remake of the blob, the 1980s remake directed by Chuck Russell, written by Frank Darabont? 
No, to, no, I, I, I didn't want to. I don't know. I, I, there's all for me. There was only one blob. So <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> trust me. Steve McQueen in it. So, well, you know. here's the thing. It doesn't have Steve McQueen, but it does have really good special effects. Is it one of the most underrated horror films of the eighties? Oh, so okay, okay. No, we'll, we'll, we'll take check it out. You know, if you're willing to give Ishtar, uh, view that with an open mind, and we'll we'll view the re- remake of the Blob in the same way absolutely and uh two very very quick questions if you don't mind as well um have you ever become emotional in the cinema when have you have you ever lost it has, has a movie made you tear up the end the end of uh umberto d just destroys destroys me just mm. uh um it's you know the it's the the scene with uh with the old professor and his dog it just every every time I see that I I know what's coming and it still uh, really de- destroys me and it you know it kind of when you see something like that you realize the the power of of yeah. of cinema you know and it's it's not manipulative in the way that you know maybe Hollywood film would be it's much more there's something more deep about that kind of way of moving people and uh so i i I really love that and for me the 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 final scene is again a final scene that's uh get out the handkerchiefs is for um for uh umbrellas of cherbourg oh my god um just that the final scene when uh the 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 guy that guy is 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 seeing his uh his former love uh catherine deneuve and she's come back with her new life now having having married this uh well the the uh the guy that she was wooed away from the other guy and then there he's a mechanic at this uh at this at this garage this gas station and it's the saddest scene of all time when they see each other but then you know you don't know if there's any hope that maybe there could be some last minute uh thing between them and but no they both go their separate ways uh forever and it's like oh my god yeah Russell, if you think that's sad you haven't seen the remake of the blob that <laughs> that will have the tears streaming down your face oh, so wow. can't wait now i have to have to bring uh tissues for the the remake of the blob too absolutely god. the whole kit and caboodle uh bring it all bring everything and uh the very last question is through, through a strange convergence of offense i have taken sparks to the cinema uh i'm paying for your tickets I'm paying for your snacks. What do you want? Um, I'd, I mean, it, this is going counter to that, but I, I wish they didn't have a snack stand, actually. Cause, it's good for my wallet, Russell. I'm, I'm happy with that. Because <laughs> hearing somebody, uh, you know, trying to uh, delicately, delicately open their box of milk duds, you know, in the really emotional scene in a movie, and then you hear the kind of rattling of the the little cardboard container and, and stuff. And it kind of drives you crazy. But, um, you know, I, and I know the thing I took a class in, in, uh, one of the classes I took in cinema at UCLA, they discussed the kind of business side of, of movie, you know, movie exhibition. And so I found out that that's where the, the theaters actually make so much of their money is from the concessions. Yeah. So I kind of understand from their side, why they, they do it, but it's like such huge profit in just uh, selling a, a Coke 
that's you know a watered down <laughs> Coke and a you know in a in a cup that and that that's where they they get so much of their their income. So I see it for that reason. If they have to survive, then they can sell milk duds and let the people crunch the boxes of milk duds. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, and Ron, what about you? Uh, I, you strike me as a nachos guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Give me some nachos and I'm a happy man. Uh, well, I, I like in Japan, at the mostly at the multiplexes, uh, they have the popcorn, but then they also have uh, caramel corn as well. They, Japan always wants to one-up whatever was kind of invented in america so you walk into the into the lobbies of the of the big multiplexes in in japan and there's this incredible aroma of caramel corn and uh it's uh intoxicating <laughs> amazing well next time chance snacks are on me uh that is for okay. sure uh it's been a pleasure russell ron thank you so much for your time good yeah, talking thank to you, you. And that was Ron and Russell Mail, a.k.a. Sparks. And that is it for the penultimate episode of Celebration of Cinema or Celebrate Our Cinemas in association with Meerkat Movies from Compare the Market. Don't forget, Annette is out in cinemas this Friday if you're listening to it this week. That is September 3rd and we at Empire absolutely flipped for it, giving it five stars. So check it out. And join us next week for the last episode in this series. Oh, I know. I know. It's been a lot of fun. We've learned a lot about each other along the way. And who knows, maybe we'll be back down the line with another series. But in the meantime, all I can do is recommend the regular Empire podcast, which is out every Friday, and our sensational spoiler special subscription channel featuring almost 200 spoiler specials and interviews with some of the world's leading directors and all for just £2.99 a month. And I can certainly recommend that you should come back next week for the final episode of this series in which I'll be talking to Mr. Elijah Wood. I suspect the Alamo Draft House in Austin, Texas is about to get a lot of love. But until then, thank you so much for listening. I'm off to send Ron and Russell a copy of the Blob remake. They may never be the same again. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.